All right, pleasant Sabbath. It's good to see you here again this Friday evening to begin the Sabbath. And we've covered the first seven chapters of Daniel. Can you believe it? So we've covered a lot of ground, and tonight is perhaps one of the most important presentations of the entire series, Daniel chapter 8. So I'm very glad that each one of you are here this evening. Before we get into our presentation, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us, for bringing us through this week. And I thank you for each person who is here. And I just pray for a special blessing on each one of us as we go through Daniel chapter 8 tonight. Speak through me, and may we put our focus on heavenly things. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as you can see from the title, the title for this evening is Daniel 8 and the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, just by way of a brief review, we've seen that the book of Daniel is a book about judgment. The name Daniel means God is my judge. And you can see in the stories of the first six chapters how Daniel and his friends lived their lives with the understanding that God is their judge. And then in our last presentation, in Daniel chapter 7, we actually see the judgment scene in heaven introduced. And we see the Ancient of Days, the Father, moving in his chariot that has wheels of fire. He's moving from one place to another place. And then the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, comes in the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. So hopefully when you had the quiz this evening, you knew that the question was false, that Jesus coming in the clouds to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 refers to the Second Coming, because that's false. That's referring to Jesus coming to the Father at the beginning of the judgment. So that's some of the highlights of what we've seen so far. And now, let's turn to Daniel chapter 8 and get right in to the message for this evening. Let's read verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Now, this is after which first vision? It's the vision of Daniel 7. Remember, the vision of Daniel 2 was Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then God also gave it to Daniel. And if you wanted to be picky you know, for the quiz, um, was it Nebuchadnezzar's dream or Daniel's dream? Because they both had it. So in a sense, you could say, it, when, you, when you ask the question, Daniel had the vision of the metals in chapter 2 and the beasts of chapter 7, that's a true statement, but the more correct statement is that Nebuchadnezzar, it was his initial vision, and then God gave it to Daniel. But anyway, I'm being picky. Um, but the point is, is that Daniel 7 was Daniel's first vision, and then Daniel 8, here he's saying, now I have another vision after the one that I had at the first. 
And if you see his reaction to the vision in Daniel 7, it said it troubled him and he kept the matter in his heart. And now, two years later, because the vision of Daniel 7 was the first year of Belshazzar, this one is the third year of Belshazzar. So now it is two years later and God is giving Daniel further information about prophecies that will take us down to the very end of time. And notice verse 2, And I saw in a vision... And it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Uli. So Daniel's down by this river, and he's taken off into vision, and Ellen White has a statement about this vision. This is Testimonies to Ministers, pages 112 and 113. The light that Daniel received from God was given especially for when? These last days. The visions he saw by the banks of what? The Uli and the Hittichel, the great rivers of Shinar, are now in process of fulfillment and all the events foretold will come to pass when? They will soon come to pass. So this vision in Daniel chapter 8, the vision that Daniel had by the river of Uli, is especially for these last days, and it's in the process of fulfillment and soon come to pass. Now, the other river, the Hittichel, that's the vision of Daniel 11. And we're going to get into Daniel, it's 10, 11, and 12. We're going to get into that starting Wednesday night. So if you've never studied Daniel 11, I think you'll enjoy the study that we have on that coming up. That's in even greater detail what we've seen so far. So based on this statement and based on the fact that it's related to our time, this chapter, this study of this chapter must be very important for us, is it not? It's for our time. It's in the process of fulfillment and it's soon to come to pass. So let's move on now. Verses 3 and 4. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beasts might stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Now, we've seen in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 prophecies that relate to the kingdoms of this world. And in Daniel 2, we saw metals used to describe the kingdoms of this world. In Daniel 7, we saw four beasts. Now, we see a goat which or, sorry, a ram, which is another type of beast, different than the lion, bear, leopard, and dreadful beast, but it's another type of beast. And so far in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7, the first kingdom has always been which one? Babylon. Babylon was the head of gold in chapter 2. It was the lion in Daniel 7. So certainly Babylon must be the ram in chapter 8, right? Oh, wrong. How do we know that? 
because so far everything's always been Babylon. So if you're studying along, you come to chapter 8, you're like, okay, now Babylon's being represented by a ram, so let me try to figure out how the ram represents Babylon, right? But if we let the Bible interpret itself, we know what we're talking about. God probably knew, this is probably why he spells it out, is because he knew that in the first two prophetic visions, Babylon was the first kingdom. So if you jump ahead to verse 20, you see that the ram represents Medo-Persia. So Babylon is missing from Daniel chapter 8. We're going to talk about why Dan, uh, sorry, Babylon is missing when we come to verses 13 and 14. But what we see first off is that we have a ram representing Medo-Persia. This is the first kingdom that's represented in Daniel chapter 8. Now, here's what we see. It has two horns, right? There are two horns, and the higher horn comes up last... And we're told, again, this represents Medo-Persia. Do you remember how that compares to the bear in Daniel chapter 7? The bear was raised up on its side, showing that one side of the kingdom was stronger than the other. Here we get a little more information. We see of the two horns, the higher horn is the last one. And when you study history, Darius, the Median, was the first king of the empire. But after that, all of the kings came from Persia. So before it even happened, God showed Persia would be stronger than Media. So that's what the two horns represent. The two horns represent Media and Persia. The second horn comes up last and it's higher because it's stronger, just as the bear was raised up on its side. Now, it's also interesting, this ram pushes in three directions. It pushes westward, this is verse 4, westward, northward, and southward. And this parallels the three ribs in the mouth of the bear. You remember the three ribs in the mouth of the bear? And the three ribs in the mouth of the bear and the three directions that the ram is pushing in, again, represent the three kingdoms that Medo-Persia conquered in its rise to power, Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. So we see that the Bible is very precise that the prophecies are very accurate. And then finally, we see that the ram became great. So the power of Medo-Persia is described as a kingdom having great power. And we see that it reigned in history from 539 to 331 BC. So, so far so good. Now, again, the point about the ram becoming great we're going to see how the following kingdoms compare to the great power of Medo-Persia. So remember that, okay? Medo-Persia became great. And how does that compare to the kingdoms that come after? Do they become stronger or weaker? We'll see what the Bible says. Now, let's read verses 5 through 8. Daniel chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. And at this point, we're repeating what we've talked about in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 about some of the kingdoms, but it's taking us to some new information. Verse 5, And as I was considering 
Behold, an he-goat, or a male goat, came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power." Verse 7, And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed what? Very great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So, starting in verse 5, Daniel, he's looking at the ram, and the ram becomes very great, and he's considering this ram, and then he sees a he-goat, or a male goat, coming across the face of the earth from the west. Now, We'll talk about the significance of that. And notice, it's, it doesn't touch the ground. Now, if something is coming across the face of the earth, and it's coming across in such a manner that it doesn't touch the ground, what does that tell you in how it's coming? It's coming very fast, right? It's like, it's almost coming like with lightning speed, and so it's like not touching the ground. It's like flying across the ground. So what do we see? It comes from the west, and it's interesting... If you look at the geography, Medo-Persia, Persia would be modern-day Iran, which is further to the east. This kingdom was coming from the west, and of course, when you go to verse 21, we see that this goat represents Greece, and Greece very definitely was to the west of where Medo-Persia was. Greece was well to the west of Israel and Medo-Persia was even to the east of Israel. So anyway, this kingdom was coming from the west. It came in such a way that it was not touching the ground. It was coming in a rapid, speedy manner, which parallels the speed of the leopard, which represented Greece in Daniel chapter 7. Do you, so you see how the Bible is repeating itself in language that is similar so that you understand that we're talking about the same kingdom. Do you see that? Okay. And we see that there was a notable horn. This goat had a notable horn. When you come again to verse 21, it says this great horn that is between the eyes of the goat is the first king of this kingdom. So everybody knows that the first king, when you study history, and most of us when we study history have heard of Alexander the Great, right? So Alexander the Great, he is the first king of Greece. And then we see that Greece destroys the ram in 331 BC. And this was when Alexander the Great was only 25 years old. I mean, very few men have risen to such high power at such a young age. And he conquered the world very rapidly. Again, Greece conquered the world more rapidly than the kingdoms it preceded. Or that preceded it, sorry. And then, then we see that this goat waxed very great. How does that compare to the ram? The ram became great 
So Medo-Persia had great power, but Greece had very great power. So it was a stronger kingdom than Medo-Persia. Now this is important for us to understand, especially when we come to the next kingdom. And we see that it reigned from 331 to 168 BC. And then it says, when this goat was strong, and this is verse 8, the great horn was broken, and only seven years into its kingdom, Alexander the Great died. Now do you know how Alexander the Great died? He happened to be visiting the city of Babylon and he had a big party and he drank too much alcohol and it weakened his immune system and he got malaria and he died from the malaria. And it says, when he is strong, the great horn was broken and it says, out of it came four notable horns out of the great horn. And those are the four divisions of Greece. And I mentioned in our last presentation, as Alexander was dying, they asked him, who will take your kingdom? Who will, will your kingdom be given to? And he said it will be given to the strongest. And the strongest meant his four strongest generals. And here is a map of the four divisions of Greece. And actually... If you look at this map where you see Cassander, that's where modern-day Greece is. That's the yellow part of the map. Medo-Persia was way over at the eastern end of this orange area. So you can see how the goat came from the west towards the east to conquer this kingdom. And these are the four divisions that came up out of Alexander the Great's Empire, And again, when we come to Daniel chapter 11, we will see that out of these four divisions, eventually the king of the north and the king of the south came to power. We'll talk about that more in detail later. So we're moving quickly through. It's a review. We've talked about Medo-Persia. We've talked about Greece. But it's important to see how these prophecies repeat themselves. Now we're going to read verses 9 through 12 of Daniel chapter 8. Starting in verse 9. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed, what? Exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. Now, the very first thing we see says out of one of them, and I, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details in, in these four verses. I'm going to give you the big picture. But it says out of one of them came forth a little horn. There's a debate. Some people say they think that the little horn came out of one of the four horns. When it says out of one of them, they think it means it came out of one of the four horns. Others believe that it came out of the four winds. And just to explain it the way I understand it, when you look at the four horns versus the four winds, this is written in Hebrew, and the four horns are written in a masculine tense or a masculine 
the masculine form of these words are used, but the four winds are written in the feminine form. And when it says, out of one of them came forth a little horn, the out of one of them is written in a feminine form. All that means to say is that I believe, and there's Adventist scholars who believe, that this little horn came from one of the four winds. Now, the reason why that's important is because non-Adventists try to teach that the little horn is a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was a king who only reigned for about seven years. Now, the thing that's strange about that is you see that Medo-Persia was great, Greece was very great, and the little horn waxed exceeding great. Medo-Persia lasted for over 200 years. Greece lasted for a good 150 years. And then you're telling us that a king who was one of the four divisions of Greece who was the one who waxed exceeding great. That just doesn't seem to fit with what the Bible is describing. Do you see what I'm saying? And if you show... And again, I realized that maybe what I was talking about with the feminine and the masculine was slightly theological, but if you can show that the little horn comes from one of the four winds instead of one of the four horns, that makes the argument for Antiochus Epiphanes even less solid because they're trying to say that he was someone who came from one of the four horns or one of the four divisions of Greece, whereas if you say he, the little horn came from one of the four winds, you're saying he just came from one of the four four directions of the earth. So that's different than saying that he came from one of the, f the four horns of Greece. And let me just take you back. So Antiochus Epiphanes came from this division of the Greek Empire, the Seleucid Empire. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that again in Daniel 11. So that's just my point to try to show that the little horn didn't come from one of the four horns, it came from one of the four winds. And the key point is that this little horn waxed exceeding great. So this must be a kingdom that has greater power than Medo-Persia or Greece. Now, when we study Daniel chapter 7, we saw that horns can represent kingdoms. And we saw that actually in verse 24, where it says, Ten horns come out of the fourth beast, and they represent ten kings. And we saw that kings and kingdoms can be interchangeable. So here we have a horn or a kingdom that waxes exceeding great that comes after the four divisions of Greece. And when we study Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, we see that it's the kingdom of Rome that always came after the kingdom of Greece. It was Rome that destroyed Greece in 168 BC. And it's clearly stronger than the ram and the goat. And notice it says it waxed toward the south, the east, and the pleasant land. The pleasant land actually refers to Judea. That's where God's people lived. And it was the kingdom of Rome that became the first kingdom that or it became a kingdom that was a persecuting force to the Jewish nation and brought them under bondage. Let's continue. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. We talked about the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, and we saw that 
you had the fourth beast, which represented pagan Rome, and then the little horn came out of the fourth beast, which represented papal Rome. Here, we just have a little horn that comes after the he-goat. So you have a ram, you have a he-goat, and then you have a little horn. The little horn isn't coming out of the goat. It's not coming out of Greece. It's just coming out of the four winds of heaven. And in Daniel 7, the little horn came out of the beast. Here, the little horn is just a continuation. It's one representation of Rome. In Daniel 7, you have the dreadful beast with iron teeth and the little horn. So you have pagan Rome and the beast, papal Rome and the little horn. But in Daniel chapter 8, you have a little horn, and it represents Rome in its entirety in two phases, pagan Rome and papal Rome. And you can see the phases of pagan and papal Rome in verses 9 through 12. Now, due to some of the issues in verses 9 through 12. There's the issue of the daily and all of that. I'm not going to get into that. If you want to talk to me about the daily, we can talk about that later. But that's not the key point for our presentation tonight. We're simply showing the kingdoms of this world to get us to where we get to the cleansing of the sanctuary in verses 13 and 14. But the key point here is we see that this little horn magnifies himself to the prince of the host, that's God himself, and we see that he casts down truth to the ground, and he practices and prospers, and certainly Rome magnified himself to the prince of the host, and in fact, not only has papal Rome magnified himself to the prince of the host, we saw that in Daniel 7, where he would speak great words against the Most High, do you remember that? And he would seek to change times and laws. But it was pagan Rome that put Christ to death on the cross. Do you realize that? So pagan Rome is saying, we have the power to put the Messiah to death. But also papal Rome has magnified itself to the prince of the host. And we see that it cast down truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. And we saw that it did that during the 1260 years of persecution where it wore out the saints of the Most High. And Daniel 725. So pagan Rome reigned from 168 to 476 AD. Pagan Rome was a persecuting power of God's people and then papal Rome, also a persecuting power, reigned from 538 to 1798 which we saw in our last presentation. So the little horn, the key thing to remember about this, the little horn cannot be one king or Antiochus Epiphanes because it waxed exceeding great. It was stronger than the kingdom of Greece or the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And the reason why the Bible says the little horn waxed exceeding great is because it's describing the greatness of the Roman Empire in its two phases as pagan and papal Rome. In its pagan phase it reigned for nearly 600 years from 168 to 470, 168 BC to 476 AD and then it had another 1260 years in its papal phase and that was exceedingly greater than what Medo-Persia or Greece brought in its empires and, and, the, and the power that those kingdoms had. So you can see how the little horn was much stronger than Medo-Persia and Greece. And 
you can see that the little horn meets the characteristics of Rome in both phases, its pagan phase and in its papal phase. Now, now is where we are going to spend the remainder of our presentation. We're basically going to be focusing in on the sanctuary. And the issue of the sanctuary is very important. This is a key part of our understanding of the book of Daniel. So what we've done in the first 12 verses, we've essentially reviewed the kingdoms that we've seen in Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7, and we see that Babylon is missing. And are you interested to know why Babylon is missing? Well, it's interesting, the sanctuary being part of chapter 8 is going to help us understand why. The other thing that I might mention, you notice in this chapter, the, the beasts that are used in this chapter are the ram and the he-goat. Why did God choose to use a ram and a he-goat to describe the kingdoms in chapter 8 compared to like a lion, bear, and a leopard and the dreadful beast of chapter 7? Why do you think the ram and the he-goat are mentioned in chapter 8? Absolutely. The ram and the he-goat were animals that were used in the sacrificial service of the sanctuary. So God is showing Daniel this vision is all about the sanctuary. I'm going to use sanctuary animals to represent kingdoms that will help you to understand where to get to the sanctuary. That's basically what we see here. So let's read verses 13 and 14. Daniel chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. You know, this is one of the most important verses in the book of Daniel, and it's one of the most important verses for the Seventh-day Adventist Church with our prophetic understanding. So let's take a closer look at, this, at these two verses. First of all, notice you have one saint speaking unto another saint. Now, notice... In the first verse, verses 3 through 12, Daniel sees everything and he's describing it. But in verse 13, you have a transition. It doesn't say he sees two saints speaking to each other. It says he heard one saint speaking to another saint. So this is a shift and now Daniel is hearing. So the verses 3 through 12 is what Daniel saw. And now verses 13 and 14 is what Daniel hears. And theologians refer to verses 13 and 14 as an audition. And that's meaning that's what you hear. And verses 3 through 12 were the vision. That's what you see. So you see the difference there? Verses 3 through 12, that's what Daniel saw. Verses 13 and 14 is what Daniel heard. And we're going to see the importance of that. Now the first thing, the question is asked, these are two heavenly beings speaking. How long shall be the vision? And the vision here is the Hebrew word hazon. And this word means something that you have seen. So this is what Daniel is seeing in verses 3 through 12. So the question is, how long is it going to be for what, you, for what has been seen in verses 3 through 12? Do you see the significance of that? How long is it going to be 
based on what we have seen so far. Now, what has been seen so far? A ram, a he-goat, and a little horn, right? And then the daily and transgression of desolation and to give the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. That's what has been seen. A ram, a he-goat, and a little horn. So how long is that going to be? That's the question. And then, so, so this is what we must know. The length of the vision must include the ram, which is Medo-Persia, the he-goat, which is Greece, the little horn, which represents papal, pagan and papal Rome, and the daily and transgression of desolation. Now, does that perhaps give us an understanding then of why Babylon is missing as a kingdom from Daniel chapter 8? Because what this is telling us is that the 2300 days will be the length of what Daniel has seen. You have Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and papal Rome, and then after that, which the 2300 days includes all of that, then you will have the cleansing of the sanctuary. Do you see that? So the question is, how long will be the vision? How long will it be for what has been seen? And the answer is 2,300 days to get through Medo-Persia, Greece, Pagan Rome, and Papal Rome. Now, do you think that 2,300 days could then be literal if the 2,300 days are going to include Medo-Persia, Greece, Pagan Rome, and Papal Rome. Do you think they could be literal days? Why not? Well, how long is 2,300 literal days? It's just short of seven literal years. How long was Medo-Persia in power? 539 to 331, that's 208 years. So already you're running into trouble. There's no way that the 2300 days can be literal days if it's going to include everything that has been seen in the vision. But yet that's what the heavenly beings are saying. The heavenly beings are saying this vision will last. The kingdoms that you've seen, they will be encapsulated within 2,300 days. And it can't be literal days. It must be years. Do you see that? Okay. Let's continue. So 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. It cannot be literal days. So... The year-day principle of Bible prophecy is actually inherent in the text. You know, we go to Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34 to show how a day for a year is in Bible prophecy. But right here, if you just study Daniel 8 in its context, you don't have to go to Ezekiel 4.6 or Numbers 14.34. You just let the Bible interpret itself and you realize the heavenly beings are saying that Medo-Persia, Greece, and the little horn of pagan and papal Rome will be included in a 2,300-year time span. Now, here's, the, here's another key point. Right there, you are given the clue as to when the 2,300-day prophecy will begin. Which kingdom will the 2,300-day prophecy begin in? in the kingdom of the ram or the kingdom of Medo-Persia because 
The question is how long is the vision? Well, the answer is 2,300 days, and the 2,300 days are part of everything that Daniel has seen. So therefore, the 2,300 days would have its starting point in the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Do you see that? Now that's interesting because when we come to Daniel 9, which we're going to study Sunday night, our next presentation in this series that I will be giving is Sunday night. My understanding is you're going to get a presentation on Revelation 13 tomorrow morning, so you want to be here for that. But Daniel 9 gives us the clue for the exact starting date of the 2300 days, but Daniel 8 itself tells you which kingdom the 2300 days begins, and Medo-Persia, which was the kingdom, was from 539 to 331 BC. So sometime between 539 and 331 BC, that's when the 2300 days would begin. Do you see that? Is that clear? Does anyone not understand what I've said so far? Is it clear? Okay, because that's a very important point. What's that? Okay. So, the 2300 days had to have begun in the kingdom of Medo-Persia because the vision for how long will the vision be is 2300 days and the vision relates to what Daniel has seen. And what he has seen is the ram of Medo-Persia, the he-goat of Greece, and the little horn of pagan and papal Rome. Therefore, the 2300 days touches all of those kingdoms. And so therefore, it starts in the first of the kingdoms that are seen in the vision. And that first kingdom is Medo-Persia. So therefore, the 2300 days would have to start sometime between 539 and 331 BC. If all we have is Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 never happens, we at least know that the 2300 days is between 539 and 331 BC. And that is why Babylon is not in the vision of Daniel chapter 8. Even though Daniel had this vision in the third year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, so Babylon was still in existence. It was still relevant. It was still the head of gold. It was still the lion. When Daniel 8, that vision comes along, God is saying Babylon is not relevant, ancient Babylon is not relevant to the sanctuary message. But Medo-Persia is relevant to the sanctuary because Medo-Persia is the kingdom where the 2300-day prophecy will start and that gives you a road marker to get you to where you get to the end of that prophecy so that you will know when the sanctuary will begin to be cleansed. So here's one of the key points that I want you to understand. The kingdoms of this world that are mentioned in prophecy, they are mentioned, they are there, and they show us the, the reliability, the veracity, and the truthfulness of prophecy. But they are, in a sense, simply placeholders to get us to what is more important. In Daniel 2, we, we see the kingdoms and eventually we see the stone which represents Jesus, the chief stone, striking the image as he comes in the clouds of heaven the second time. So the kingdoms of this world simply take us down to when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. In Daniel chapter 7, we have the kingdoms of this world. They are there and after those kingdoms, we come to the judgment scene in heaven. 
And here in Daniel chapter 8, after the kingdoms of this world, we come to the cleansing of the sanctuary. So that tells me, based on our study of Daniel so far, that the second coming, the judgment, and the cleansing of the sanctuary are of utmost importance. They're closely related, and they're the things that we should be putting our special focus on. You know, it's great to know what the beasts and the horns represent, but the more important thing is, what about our time? What is the message for our time? The message for our time is that we're living in the hour of God's judgment, that we're living in the hour of the cleansing of the sanctuary, and it is in the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary that we are prepared to meet Jesus come in the clouds of heaven. Amen? Amen. So, this is where we're going to be spending our time. Now, this next slide, let's see, I already talked, Babylon is missing, and we talked about that. This next slide, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but if you notice very carefully, it has the starting date for the 2300-day prophecy. Now, we are going to prove this in greater detail in our next presentation. But the starting date is 457 BC. That's when Artaxerxes gave his decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That was in the seventh year of his reign. The canon of Ptolemy makes it indisputably clear that the seventh year of Artaxerxes is 457 BC. And we're going to see how the 70 weeks ties in and how all of that happened right on time. But what that tells us is when we come 2,300 years after 457 BC, that brings us to 1844 AD. Now, here's the first point. The seventh year of Artaxerxes, 457 BC, did that fall on the kingdom of Medo-Persia? Yes, it did. It was right in the middle, so to speak, right between 539 to 331, 457 BC. The decree is made. That's the starting point for the 2300 days. And then you go through all the kingdoms, Medo-Persia, Greece, Pagan Rome, Papal Rome. And we saw how Papal Rome received a deadly wound in 1798. And shortly after that, the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary began. Now, let me show you because we're going to spend more time talking about the connection between the 70 weeks and the 2300 days and the starting point in our next presentation. But let me show you how Daniel 7 and 8 line up with each other. So look at this slide carefully and you'll see the kingdoms that come. You see Babylon in Daniel 7, it's missing in chapter 8, but you have Medo-Persia, you have the bear and the ram in chapter 8, um, chapter 7 is the bear, chapter 8 is the ram, and then for Greece, you have the leopard in chapter 7, the he-goat in chapter 8. And then for, the, for Rome, you have the great and dreadful beast in chapter 7, the little horn um, in chapter 8 is pagan Rome. And then you have the little horn and the little horn for 7 and 8 representing papal Rome. Now, here's the key point. In Daniel 7, you come to the judgment. In Daniel 8, you come to the cleansing of the sanctuary. Both of those events begin in 1844. Now that makes that very relevant to us, does it not? Because 1844 was 167 years ago. 
Now, if you look at some of these kingdoms, for example, Medo-Persia reigned from 539 to 331, 208 years. We're 167 years from 1844. So really, that's not a lot of time since the judgment began, since the cleansing of the sanctuary began. And we have the privilege to be alive during that time right now. Do you realize that you know when we look at Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, of all the time periods of Earth's history that we could have been alive, we happen to be alive at the very end, just before everything wraps up. We happen to be alive during the hour of God's judgment while the sanctuary in heaven is being cleansed. Of all the millions of people who have lived since 605 B.C. when Babylon began its kingdom and people lived during the time of Babylon and then Medo-Persia and then Greece and then pagan room and then papal room, we are alive after all those kingdoms have risen and fallen. We are living in the toenail of time, we are living in the judgment hour, in the cleansing of the sanctuary, and that should thrill our hearts and our souls through and through. Amen? Because the, in that message, in that understanding, comes the, the knowledge that at the end of all of this, Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, in the understanding of living in the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary, this helps us to understand how to be prepared for when Jesus comes in the clouds. So let's continue. Now we're going to keep going here. What is the sanctuary? Because it's interesting, the, the forerunners of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they were known as Millerites. They believed, they preached the 2300-day prophecy, and they believed that the sanctuary was the earth that was going to be cleansed by fire at the coming of Jesus. But they made a mistake in what the sanctuary represents. So I want to show you very quickly what the sanctuary is that's being cleansed. Turn first of all to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22 through 24. Here we read, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now before I go to verse 24, notice this. What Paul is saying, and Paul is the author of Hebrews, what Paul is saying is that here on the earthly in the earthly sanctuary service, it was necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens and the pattern of what was in heaven was the earthly sanctuary, that they should be purified with the sacrifice of blood. But notice it says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So what Paul is saying is, if the earthly sanctuary was cleansed by blood, 
Don't you think the heavenly sanctuary would be as well? And notice what he says in verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Now, what were the holy places made with hands? That was the holy place and the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he's saying Christ didn't enter into the holy places of an earthly sanctuary. He entered into the heavenly sanctuary of which the earthly sanctuary was a figure or a pattern of. And in Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, he makes it very clear. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of what? The sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. So listen. There is a sanctuary in heaven just as there was a sanctuary on earth. And just as the sanctuary on earth was cleansed in the earthly service, so the sanctuary in heaven needs cleansing. Now, I don't have this in my slides, but when you study Leviticus chapter 16, you will come to an understanding that it was on the Day of Atonement that the sanctuary was cleansed and the high priest went into the most holy place. So Daniel 8.14 when it says, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. What he's saying is, 2,300 years, you go through Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, Papal Rome, and you come to 1844. 1844 is well past the cross. Jesus died in 31 AD, and when Jesus died, he then ascended to heaven. And when he ascended to heaven, he went to the sanctuary in heaven to do the work of a high priest, to do the work that the priest did here on this earth. And at the end of the 2,300 days, Jesus, our high priest, will go to the most holy place, just as the earthly priest went into the holy place on the day of cleansing or day of atonement in the earthly service. Do you see that? So that tells us that Jesus had a very important change of apartment in the heavenly sanctuary in 1844. He moved from the holy place to the most holy place. And you know, Daniel 7, 9 and 10 gives us a clue to that. I mentioned that in our last presentation. But the throne of God that the Ancient of Days was seated on had wheels on it which shows that it was movable, which showed that when the judgment began, it was moving. God doesn't just say something for no reason. The wheels show that God was moving from one place to another. And if you study Revelation 4, you will see that the throne of God was before the seven candlesticks. That was the holy place. But in 1844, the throne moves to the most holy place. All right. So... Now that we've had a brief rundown of the sanctuary, let's go on and finish Daniel chapter 8. We're going to read briefly verses 15 through 17. So now 
<clears throat> we've had the two phases. We had the, the vision of what Daniel saw in verses 3 through 12. We had the audition, or what Daniel heard in verses 13 and 14. Now notice starting in verse 15. And it came to pass, when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. So notice, just as in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel asked more questions to figure out what was this thing about all the beasts, and he especially wanted to know about the fourth beast and the little horn. Now he wants to know about this vision again. And in verse 16, and I heard a, voice, a man's voice between the banks of Eli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. So now the heavenly beings want Daniel to understand the importance or the significance of this vision. Daniel is seeking for the meaning. Now in verse 16, Gabriel is told to make Daniel understand the vision. Now this is interesting. The word for vision in verse 16 is different than the word for vision in verses 3 through 12, and actually also in verse 15. The word here is marae, which actually relates to what he had heard. Remember, he heard two heavenly beings speaking in verses 13 and 14. So Gabriel is told to help Daniel understand what he heard. And that relates specifically to the 2300-day prophecy in verses 13 and 14. So it seems that God especially wants Daniel to understand the 2300 days. He's going to help him understand everything else as well, but he especially wants him to understand the 2300 days. Now, in verse 17 it says, For at the time of the end shall be the vision, and again... The word for vision here goes back to what Daniel has seen. And what Daniel has seen includes everything. And the 2300 days includes all of the kingdoms that Daniel has seen. And here's the key point. When is this vision for? It's for the time of the end. Now, let's briefly talk about the time of the end. We'll talk about this in Daniel chapter 11, so I'm going to run through this quickly. Daniel 11, 33 to 35, shows that papal Rome persecutes the saints till the time of the end. Daniel 7, 25, shows that papal Rome persecutes the saints for 1260 years. That tells us that the end of the 1260 years in which papal Rome persecuted the saints, it ended in 1798, and 1798 is therefore the beginning of the time of the end. Now, I realize I went through that quickly, so let me repeat it briefly. Daniel 11 shows that papal Rome, in verses 33 through 35, would persecute God's people for many days. It just uses the term many days. But in Daniel 7.25, it says that it would wear out the saints for a time, times, and the dividing of times, which we saw was 1260 years. Now, Daniel 11.35 says that that persecution for many days would last till the time of the end, which is the same as the 1260 years of Daniel 7. So that tells us that at the end of the persecution is the beginning of the time of the end, which tells us that the vision of the 2300 days is especially for the time of the end, which began in 1798, and we are living in that time. Amen? Amen. 
So this vision is for our time. Now, let's go on. We're going to see how Gabriel explains this vision. And this is a brief review because we already saw a lot of this. Verse 18, now he, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground, and he touched me and set me upright. Verse 19, and he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. Now, verse 20, this is review. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. We know that. But again, the reason why God spells it out is so that scholars who would come later wouldn't say, oh no, the ram is Babylon. And Daniel, he wouldn't be confused. We know very clearly the ram is Medo-Persia. That is the kingdom in which the 2300-day prophecy begins. Verse 21, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander the Great. That's just a brief lightning review. Verse 22. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. Those are the four divisions of Greece. And when it says not in his power, that means that the power that came after Alexander the Great did not come from his own line, his own bloodline, or his own family. They were his four generals. So just as the prophecy predicted, it happened. Now let's jump ahead to verses 23 through 25. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now I think it's very clear, considering that we see the ram is Medo-Persia, the he-goat is Greece, you have Alexander the Great, and the four divisions, that this king of fierce countenance, understanding dark sentences, is again representing Rome. You have the same sequence of kingdoms as we saw in the first part of the chapter. This is a repetition with further explanation. But it's interesting, instead of describing this power as the little horn, this time, Rome is described as a king of fierce countenance, understanding dark sentences. And this is something that Daniel would have heard about. Because a king of fierce countenance is actually described in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if you've ever studied Deuteronomy chapter 28, Deuteronomy chapter 28 was one of the last things that Moses said to the children of Israel before he died on Mount Nebo. And, and what he did was he gave blessings and curses, and he says, if you are faithful, these are the blessings you will receive. If you are not faithful, here are the curses that you will receive. And one of the curses was that if they broke the covenant, eventually God would send a king a fierce countenance. Now in verse 48 of Deuteronomy 28, it talks about how this king would put a yoke of iron on their neck, the iron of Rome. And then in verse 49, then we see it's a nation that comes from afar off, like an eagle that flies just as the... And at the end of verse 49, it says, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. That's the same in, 
in the, in the Hebrew where it says understanding dark sentences or a tongue that you will not understand, that means the same thing. Dark sentences, a tongue that you don't understand, that's talking about the same thing. And the verse 50, 50, it says, a nation of fierce countenance. And it just so happens that the nation of Rome, they were based, their language is based on the Roman alphabet, which is different than the alphabet that the Jewish people knew. So it was a language they didn't understand. And Rome is described as a king of fierce countenance because it was a kingdom of persecuting power. So in Daniel chapter chapter 8 verses 23 through 25 now Daniel is starting to hear uh oh this king of fierce countenance is showing up that's what Moses talked about when he talked about the curses just before he died in Deuteronomy 28. Oh boy, maybe this little horn power that bothered me so much in chapter 7 and that's concerning me here again in chapter 8, this religious power that persecutes the saints. This may be coming onto the scene of earth's history because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. And you're going to see that Daniel 9 talks about that. So we'll talk about that more later. We see how this king stands up against the prince of princes just as we saw earlier in the chapter. And it's interesting, he's broken without hand just as a stone was cut out without hands that destroyed the image in chapter 2 and it strikes the feet. Here we see that Rome is destroyed or broken without hand. So this is the little horn power of Rome. So that's a brief repetition. In the verses 26 and 27, we read, And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days... Afterward I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Now the very first point, the vision of the evening and the morning, this goes back to the word for what he heard. The vision of the evening and morning. Now some Bibles translate when it says, unto 2,300 days then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. It could actually be translated unto 2,300 evenings and mornings. So when he hears the vision of the evening and the morning, that's specifically referring to the vision of the 2,300 evenings and mornings. And he is told it is true, but he's told to shut it up, for it is for many days. And the vision that he's told to shut up is actually what he has seen, the Hazon. And he fainted. He was astonished. None understood it. So... You come to the end of chapter 8 and you're like, wow, Daniel didn't understand the vision. None understood it. But thankfully, in Daniel chapter 12, we see, just as we see that this vision was shut up at the end of Daniel chapter 8 for many days, we see in Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 that Daniel is told to seal the book till the time of the end, which is 1798. And in verses 9 and 10, again as he is told in chapter 12 to seal the book till the time of the end, we see that knowledge will increase and the wise shall understand. So even though Daniel didn't understand in his time, there would be coming a time in the time of the end where the wise would understand and it's interesting the parable of the ten virgins shows the wise who did understand we don't have time to talk about that tonight but it talks about the ten virgins who went forth to meet the bridegroom the Millerites fulfilled that parable but Ellen White says that those who live just before Jesus comes will also fulfill that parable so we can be the wise who understand 
Now the other interesting point, Revelation 10 shows the rise of the second advent movement because in Revelation chapter 10 verses 1 and 2 you see a mighty angel and I don't have time again but that's a Jesus who has a little book open in his hand. He is announcing in Revelation 10 that the book of Daniel and the 2300 day prophecy that have been sealed till the time of the end is open to be understood and Revelation 10 describes the rise of the second advent movement which was a group of people that we are part of today that God raised up to understand the unsealed prophecies of the book of Daniel which were written especially for our day and they and Revelation 10 talks about how the second advent movement, they ate up the words of the prophecy of the 2300 days. It was sweet in their mouth, bitter in their belly. They went through the bitter disappointment in 1844. But out of that came our movement where we came to a greater understanding of the 2300 day prophecy. So here's where we are. How do we make this applicable for our time? What is the significance of 1844 and the cleansing of the sanctuary and the fact that we are living in the judgment hour of Earth's history? I just have a few quotes and then we'll close. The Great Controversy, pages 488, 489. All who have received the light upon these subjects are to bear testimony of the great truths which God has committed to them. The sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work on behalf of men. So what's happening in heaven, especially since 1844, is the very center of Christ's work. It concerns every soul living upon the earth. And I'm going to skip the rest of the quote. But this is the very center of Christ's work on behalf of men. Now notice this quote. This is page 489, Great Controversy. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Wow. So what Jesus is doing as our high priest, seated on the right hand of the throne of God, he's our advocate, he's our intercessor. What he's doing there right now is just as important as what he did on the cross. And when we study Daniel and Revelation, we come to understand why. Because we see that the prophecies point to the end of the world when the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary begin in 1844, where God and Jesus went to the most holy place to do all work of cleansing and judgment to prepare a people to be ready for Jesus to come in the clouds of heaven. And it is important for us to know what Jesus is doing in heaven so that we will be ready for him when he comes in the clouds the second time. By his death, he began that work which after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. We must by faith enter within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. And again, I'll skip the rest of the quote. But the intercession of Christ on man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential as was his death on the cross. Now this is where it gets practical for us. This is manuscript 8, October 20, 1888. Now Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary. And we can show from Daniel, based on the 2300-day prophecy, yes, he is. He's in the most holy place. And what is he doing? Continuing. Making atonement for us, cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of the people. Now notice this. Then we must enter by what? By faith 
into the sanctuary with him, we must commence the work in the sanctuary where? Of our souls. We are to cleanse ourselves from all defilement. So notice, this is very personal. It's not just a corporate work that's taking place. There is a personal element to the cleansing of the sanctuary. Our souls are a sanctuary. We are to be cleansed from sin, just as the sanctuary is to be cleansed in heaven. And then, Maranatha, page 249. From the Holy of Holies, there goes on the grand work of instruction. The angels of God are communicating to men. Christ officiates in the sanctuary. We do not follow him into the sanctuary as we should. Christ and angels work in the hearts of the children of men. The church above, united with the church below, is warring the good warfare upon the earth. Now notice this. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. So notice, in order for the sanctuary to be cleansed in heaven, God's people, His professed people, the second advent movement that He raised up in 1844 to have a cleansed sanctuary, we must be cleansed and purified for that sanctuary in heaven to be cleansed. Do you see that? Because as long as we as His people are defiled, the sanctuary will remain defiled. Now don't get the wrong idea. Don't say, well, hey, if I just stay defiled, then I can keep Jesus from coming forever, and then I'll just have a great time on this earth, and then shortly before I'll, I die, I'll just give my heart to the Lord, and then I'll still get to go to heaven. You know what? There could be people all around you who are surrendering their lives and giving their lives completely to Jesus so that work of cleansing and judgment will reach its conclusion and you don't want to be left out. You don't want to be playing games with God at this late date of earth's history. We are living in the judgment hour. We are living in the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary. We are God's second advent people and now is not the time to be playing games with God. Finishing the quote, Maranatha, page 249, God's people are now to have their eyes fixed on the heavenly sanctuary where our great high priest is interceding for his people. Finally, Great Controversy, page 49, 490, we are now living in the great day of atonement. In the typical service, while the high priest was making the atonement for Israel, all were required to afflict their souls by repentance of sin and humiliation before the Lord, lest they be cut off from among the people. In like manner, all who would have their names retained in the book of life should now, in the few remaining days of their probation, afflict their souls before God by sorrow for sin and true repentance. There must be deep, faithful searching of heart. The light, frivolous spirit indulged by so many professed Christians must be put away. There is earnest warfare before all who would subdue the evil tendencies that strive for the mastery. The work of preparation is an individual work. We are not saved in groups. The purity and devotion of one will not offset the want of these qualities in another. Though all nations are to pass in judgment before God, yet he will examine the case of each individual with as close and searching scrutiny as if there were not another being upon the earth. Everyone must be tested and found without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now listen, I believe with all my heart and I know all of us here that God is a God of love, of mercy, of grace. He is long-suffering. His goodness leads us to repentance. But at the same time, 
God is not going to play around forever. And we should not be playing around with God forever. God loves us so much that we should, in response to His love for us, give everything in our lives for Him and say, you know what, I'm not going to play games with God anymore. I'm not going to come to church and act like I'm such a good Christian and then go home and treat my family like I'm the devil anymore. I'm not going to go to work and be cheating and doing things that I know are clearly against the principles of God, cutting corners, misrepresenting God's name. Now is the time, like Daniel, where I am going to be found without blame. I am going to represent the name of God, even if it's only ten people, two people, five people, even if only a few people see the name of God rightly represented by my life. I will be faithful if no one else is watching, because I love God so much. It is too late in earth's history to be playing games with God. So as we, as we conclude, this work of cleansing began in 1844. We have the privilege to be alive while this work of cleansing is taking place. Now, not tomorrow, not next week, not at the conclusion of this series. Now is the time to be cleansed from all of our sins. And if we are holding on to anything in our lives, the Holy Spirit can convict us and we know what those sins are. I can't tell you what they are. Your pastor or your elder can't necessarily tell you what they are unless it's something obvious if you're living in open sin. But there are some sins that are secret, that are personal, that only you and God will know. And now is the time to be cleansed from all of our sins by the grace and mercy of God. God raised up the Second Advent Movement to prepare a people for cleansing during the judgment hour. That is the essence of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, 6 through 12 which declare fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven the earth the sea and the fountains of waters you see we have a glorious message to proclaim that the hour of judge, God's judgment began in 1844 and by the grace of God he has given us a message to be given to every nation kindred tongue and people to call people out of Babylon into his his remnant church so that when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven he will see as many people as possible saved in his kingdom. Amen. Now as we close some of you may be convicted that there are sins in your life that you need to surrender completely on the altar to the Lord and now is the time that the Lord is calling he is calling for you to surrender those sins to him and if you feel convicted to do so, I would invite you to stand at this time to say, by the grace of God, I am surrendering my life completely to the Lord. I am going to surrender those cherished sins that I have been hanging on to for so long because it is too late in earth's history to be playing games with God any longer. If that is your desire, I invite, with you, I invite you to stand with me as we close with prayer. And I stand with you. Let's bow our heads with prayer. For prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this message of the cleansing of the sanctuary. We thank you that in your great mercy you have given us a message where we understand that you are in the most holy place doing the work to cleanse us from all of our sins. Lord, help us to put away the frivolous things from our lives. Help us to put away the things that we are allowing to come between you and us. Those programs on television that we know are 
causing our minds to go down into the gutter of this world and to enjoy the pleasures of sin rather than to think about heavenly things. Lord, help us to put away our evil spirit or evil temper, whatever may be that causes us to misrepresent your name to those around us. May we be loving, kind, meek, gentle Christians who are like Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that we will be faithful and be found ready when you come. We thank you and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.